0: Hello, I'm Scott Sarkin. I'm Evan Novi williams And
1: I'm Michael Barr, and this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. Today, we have a conversation with Jim Rooney, son of fame, Steelers owner, Dan Rooney. And that's coming up in a minute. But first, let's look at some of the stories we're watching in the world of sports business, beginning with the protests at this weekend's Harvard-Yale football game. About 42 people were charged with disorderly conduct after the protests interrupted the football game. Some were on the field holding banners urging action on climate change. Others' signs had referred to the Puerto Rican debt relief or the treatment of Uyghurs in China.
2: You need, to pick a, you need to pick a topic if you're going to stage well, a protest at a foot. Like, Is it like the 10-yard line meet for climate change, the 40-yard line meet
1: for— Yeah, they they stood at midfield during halftime of the game.
2: But in all seriousness, th- this could become a huge problem for big-time college sports. Imagine if they have to cancel the game, uh, which was pondered here. They, yeah, I
0: think there was a lot of consideration. The, you know, yeah. 200, about 250 people— took the midfield at, at the Yale bowl this weekend, the middle of the Harvard Yale game, the biggest rivalry in Ivy league, uh, sports, uh, and yeah, there was certainly consideration, I believe, of of, of having to, to cancel the game if, if students didn't move. From what I understand, a number of them eventually left, and then a number were arrested. You know, twenty, thirty, maybe a couple more uh, ended up being arrested, charged with disorderly conduct. An athletic uh,
2: director's nightmare.
0: Yeah, this yeah. is this is a worst nightmare, and you know, this is a game that you know Ivy League Network, you know, goes through ESPN Plus now. Um, but if if you kind of broaden this to the potential of a much bigger game and On a much stage, higher profile stage. Yeah. Uh, this is something that I know, because I've talked to them, athletic directors are thinking about constantly.
1: Well, one thing it brings up right away is security. If you can storm the field like that during the game at halftime...
2: Well, you could always storm the field. Yeah, I mean, but but the, usually you, you see storm the
1: storming the of the field after, you know, a big win and they're tearing down the goal. And they've tried to stop
2: that too for insurance reasons. However... You're, I'm wondering now if athletic directors and universities are going to have to start playing some increased premiums uh, based on games that might not be played because of protest. Imagine a Final Four game. Imagine yes. a you know college football playoff game that all of a sudden does not take place. It's not like you can just say, well, we'll play tomorrow. Yeah, it's, it's not that easy.
0: And if folks may remember back in, I believe, 2016, uh, the the University of Missouri had kind of widespread campus protests uh, around, you know, the the administration's uh, race relations. Uh, the football team joined that protest, and there was a couple days in there where it seemed as though the football team's game against BYU that Saturday wasn't going to be pay- played. It was an SEC network game, I believe. The school was going to be fined a million dollars, if not more, mm-hmm. if if the team did indeed decide not to play. And in the end, they they ended up playing the game, um, but there was a lot of conversation in the college sports world, exactly what you're saying, Scott. What do we do? What do we put in our contracts to make sure that if this happens again, I'm not liable? It, it's big for two reasons. Obviously, the media money, huge. You know, these the schools are paid a lot of money. Yeah, Forced major sure is paid one a thing. Lot of this, money. this is not that. And secondly, you know, ticket sales. If you're a college football team, still, you know, one of your big major revenue streams is ticket sales. And, you know, losing one of your six home games because, you know, the team is refusing to play also hits you financially in another way.
2: It was one of those times, I mean, you'll know, what crystallized in a lot of the college athletes' minds the powers that they do have. And let's not think it just didn't have a spark or something to do with Uma And what we're seeing now in college athletes push, pushing for pay or at least the ability to benefit from likeness and image, all tied together, they really see they do have a lot of
0: power. Yeah. And there's two things here that are equally impactful, in my opinion. There's what happened this Saturday, which is not players taking a stand, but, but fans. fans using mm-hmm. the platform of a major game to make their case known and, and potentially disrupt a game. And then the thing that you're talking about, which, in my opinion, probably more likely even, yeah. especially in college basketball, uh, which is this idea that that players who are looking to get systemic change within the NCAA decide that, oh, we know, why not right now yeah, to make a major stand? We know certain have thought
2: about not playing major games. We know that's happening.
0: Mm-hmm. Speaking of
1: basketball, up next, let's talk about some potential changes that could come to the NBA, including reseeding the four conference finalists, a mid-season tournament, a post-season play-in, and shortening the regular season. Now, the mid-season tournament, that's very interesting to me.
2: It's all very interesting to me, and I'll tell you why. Because a lot of times, leagues are so stuck in tradition that they don't even think about, forget about, small changes. Major seismic changes in the way things have always been done. The worst reason to do something is because it's just always been done that way. And you really do need to credit Adam Silver, in my estimation, for looking at proposals. I'm not saying it's done, but moving in a direction toward being open to, listening to the players, this load management. I know people don't like it, but he's looking for ways to create long-term, not only interest, but what follows the interest? The revenue ensuring that his players and his league and his owners for the long term—and let's credit Michelle Roberts, too, for engaging in these discussions, for trying to find what they seem is a better way.
0: We talked last week or or maybe two weeks ago about early season NBA ratings, and they're they're not good. And I would imagine that the powers that be at the NBA look at those ratings and they say, listen— our regular season product might not be as enticing as we want it to be. And and a lot of these changes, which is shortening the regular season, adding some in-season tournaments, maybe even adding a play-in tournament before the playoffs, seems to be a way at maybe shifting games that are from the quote-unquote irrelevant regular season into games that maybe matter. And more. how
2: long have we heard, Edmund? Imagine if you could have really the two best teams in basketball playing for the championship. Forget about this East versus West, because for so long it seemed as if we had like the top three or four teams were in the Western Conference. <laughs> Which it's, Major League Soccer has just Major gone off. So this, this right. process, yeah. you could have had sort of the Oklahoma City Thunder or the Rockets at their height playing the Warriors instead of some what turned out to be lesser matchups in the finals.
1: Yeah, I'd like to see that. This throughout the conferences and just let's go to it on the record. Like you said, it's like, okay, the, the two best teams, or, the, or let's say you. Whatever. They just take eight teams. You take the eight teams that have the best record. I'm not, I'm not. Of course, it's bigger than that. But let's start from there. And and that way, you're going to get the best of the
2: best. From, from the business perspective, they'll credit the stakeholders listening to all the folks in the universe and seeking a solution. It's it, not. It's not easy, but they're embarking on change.
0: If I'm ESPN or I'm Turner, Turner, one one of the big media companies that pay billions of dollars for for NBA rights, do I look at this and I I think great. I mean this again, this this takes some day some days off the off the regular season schedule where, you know, we're seeing increasingly top players are choosing not to play to manage their load and maybe create more excitement middle of the season before the playoffs well, at the here, end of the
2: season. Here's the genius of it all. You said if I'm ESPN or Turner and I'm looking at this, you're not looking at this you're participating in it sure you know the hand, the arms are out it's bring in the stakeholders and say what makes sense for you what makes sense for you this is what we need can we find a better way that accommodates all parties.
0: By the way, real quick, a lot of these things sound will be sound very familiar to fans of esports. Yes, because a lot of esports seasons do this—you know, mid-season right. tournaments, you know, playing games for playoffs, all, all things like that. I, I don't know if that was an inspiration, but it is funny to see—you know—the NBA considering widespread changes that are happening in, in esports leagues. us say
1: exactly? Answers. And finally, stop up. I had to do that. I love it. Uh, the popular <laughs> <I had to. laughs> the popular ticket app uh, owned by eBay looks like it is being sold.
0: Yeah, so ViaGoGo, which um, is a name that might not mean too much to to our American listeners, but folks who are listening in Europe certainly know one of the dominant players in, in ticket resale overseas. Uh, it appears as though they're, they're nearing a deal $4 dollars, $4 sorry, uh, to buy StubHub, which would kind of be a merging of you know possibly the biggest brand in resale tickets here in the U.S. with possibly the biggest brand in resale tickets outside the U.S. I'm,
2: I'm glad we were talking ticketing last week so we could you know sort of get a better idea yeah, of how exa- the whole exactly. universe works. <laughs> because as I've said, I'm, I'm interested in it, but for me it's always been about, why are you charging me so much? <laughs> and you know, do, do I really need these sites? You know, Just part, sign your partnerships with, with the teams and let me just get my ticket from the box
0: office. Yeah, and, and just to kind of clarify for, for folks who aren't fully familiar with the way this whole world works, Jared Smith, who runs Ticketmaster, was on the show last week. Ticketmaster, a, a majority of their business, is the primary ticket market, right? So selling the the tickets directly from the the, the artist or the team. StubHub works in this secondary world, which is essentially the person who buys the ticket from from Ticketmaster who wants to resell it. uh, All B to B and
2: B to C both B2B and B2C exactly C companies.
0: And, and Ticketmaster does some of the of, of the resale but but StubHub via GoGo are, are are exclusively you know these resale uh platforms this is a pretty big You're deal right you surprised I mean, by the 4 billion dollar it was a lot bigger than I kind of was expecting um but you know it, it's valuable to Viagogo the the guy who founded Viagogo is also a StubHub co-founder yep. uh so there there's some synergy there he said they've
2: long wanted to unite he, these he companies he has said he
0: long wanted to uh eBay stock also jumped uh, on Monday morning uh, off the news, so you know this eBay was I, I believe or sorry, parent st- of? yeah it was parent of StubHub and StubHub was I think 14 percent of revenue, but it did sound like eBay investors felt like StubHub was not maybe core to you know the marketplace idea that that eBay has, so they feel like the company is is, is more efficient without investors it.
2: Investors like their companies to stick to the core competencies. <laughs> They're like, what are we? It does distra- seem to be a theme, What's right? What's this distraction over here?
0: Yeah, so the next big sale, which will be a much bigger sale than StubHub, eBay owns a classified. Business that that exists mostly in Europe, uh, and they will be selling that, I believe, as well, and that will get a, a much bigger price tag uh, than 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 StubHub did. I heard it here first, bar much bigger price tag. I'm hearing it. Uh,
2: and I know. I wasn't I, sure you were paying attention. I was. I thought you, you might have had a little closed eye moment. There. No. That,
1: well, just wow. I, no, I'm, ki- no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. <Francesa laughs> <accusation. Yeah. laughs> hey,
2: hey. We're trying to get Frances on the show. I hope he doesn't listen to this oh, episode.
1: Oh man. Uh, okay. Now let's get to our conversation <laughs> with Jim Rooney. Scott, uh, why don't you kick it off? Mr. Jim Rooney,
2: son of Dan, owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers back in the day, ambassador to Ireland, and we're talking business of sports. You have a book out. My, my favorite thing, I have a 10-year-old when I always tell him that football is a business. He doesn't get it. Wait, I thought it was just a sports dad. So Wait, you mean to tell me football is a business, Jim?
3: Is it a business like any other? Uh, I don't think it's a business like any other. I think there's elements of it that are are obviously you have to be fundamentally sound. But I think the biggest difference is that your product are human beings and they're working in a team setting. And when the Steelers are good, you know we we have done, I think, a pretty good job over most years of of really respecting that human quality while also setting a standard that look, You know, there's there's a standard for the field and then there's a there's there's business realities here. Is it a good idea
2: as the owner of an NFL team to establish close personal ties with the players because you may need to jettison that player? It's sort of that business and personal should not mix. You just is it easier to keep an arm's length or is it better to have that good relationship?
3: Well, I look. I can only speak for for us, and and I, I talk in the, in the book about um, you know, my father's approach, and you, you know, the, I think a great situation is Franco Harris. So Franco left on on not the most perfect terms with the Steelers. In fact, Coach Noel who who ended up being one of his, you know, very close to Franco. Um, you know, said Franco Who when he wasn't a training camp in the season that they end up going to Seattle. So so you get through those those periods where there's there's sometimes some acrimony, but in the long run, uh, I remember there was a Ku Klux Klan rally in Pittsburgh, and Franco went and, and protested outside the city county building. And this was about eight years after that, and my father went and sat down with Franco and, and Joe Gordon, who was our, our publicity man at the time, you know, sat there all day with him and and showed this type of support. So, in the long run, where we've been successful is having deep and meaningful relationships, and 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 trying to engage folks in, in things that that um, you know go way beyond just you know a paycheck or or even sort of day to day camaraderie in the workplace. Now, you have to be authentic. If you can't do that, you know I don't know that I could pull that off as well as my father did. If you can't do that, you, I, I don't think you should try to be something you're not. But I do think that people want. Uh, that that authentic connection and, and that experience that's that's meaningful one thing that
1: I always admired about the Steelers is that there was a low turnover for coaches can you expand on that and why the team has been successful with that
3: absolutely so I, I think that's something um, that that you know is sort of the the hallmark of, or at least if you point to one thing that my father did well it, it was hiring and, and in particular hiring coaches and, you know, if you look at the Mike Tomlin situation, uh, we started with 37 candidates. We looked at, you know, the pool we started with was 37. Uh, we went down to 12, We went down to four, and then we hired Mike. So, you know, my father loved the media, had great respect for the media, but but didn't get caught up in, hey, I'm going to get – you know, it's going to be. I'm going to get a bad story on Monday because we didn't get the coach that everyone wanted. Everyone wanted us to get. He really looked at. You know, this is a, a multi-year, hopefully multi-decade hire, and we did it with Chuck Knoll, You know, 23 years. You did it with Bill Cowher. I think 15. And then Mike is on his 18th year, 17th year, well, 17, 18. That, that
2: seems right, like a yeah. simple business principle. Why don't teams <laughs> seem to understand and know the Utah Jazz never won it all back in the day? They had that guy join in their way. What are you going to do? Yep. But but Jerry Sloan always knew that I had ownership. They had my back if I ever had a problem with a player. They were going to go. It's not going to be me. That seems important in sports.
3: Yeah. Absolutely. I mean I mean there there has to be some level of, of infrastructure, you have to have the relationships I was talking about with Franco and, and these guys. But but I think they also need to know okay, there's some structure here, and everyone has to to adhere to some degree of what are we trying to achieve, and that the coach is the number one person in in sort of managing that relationship with the players. And if if I think if people feel like the the coach ha- coach's back is had by is is supported by ownership, you know they're not going to try and play games, go around the coach, things like that.
0: Jim, you've been around. Football, professional football, for a long time, you've seen it balloon into this fifteen billion dollar a year enterprise. How healthy do you think the NFL specifically is as a business moving forward? There, there are some tailwinds, obviously, also some headwinds. I'm curious what you think, kind of, the future holds for football.
3: Well, you know, I think that um, my father worked hard to try and always. You know, on the league level, you know, he was he was the lead negotiator with labor and, and, and always try to find these win win situations, try to find ways where you could, you know, you could find a, um, um, uh, you know, a compromise if you need to have a compromise, try to understand the other person's point of view. If the NFL continues to do those things, I think that that there's enough uh, runway for us to keep having this success. If we kind of fall out of that, I would be pretty concerned.
0: Mm. and well, real specifically in terms of the the head injuries and and kind of the participation in football is is dropping um we talk to people some think that that is a a massive worry for NFL owners other people think that you know you don't necessarily need vibrant youth participation in football for there to still be people that love to watch it at the professional level kind of ha- the more we learn about you know the, the impact of, of football uh, on the brain, I guess more specifically, kind of, how, how do you think that affects the future of, of, of the game?
3: Well, if any, anyone who's not concerned, I, I, I think you're, I think you're missing something very significant. You have to be concerned across the board on on the injury front and, and particularly the head injury front. Um, but I also believe that that you know we have really led sports now now you can say we 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 needed to but we've really led sports in terms of you know awareness around head injuries around the technology development around changing the techniques and then around making investments in the health health system so you know i hope that we're making a positive contribution to that and i hope that that has an impact both on the the health and safety of of our players as well as all players but also um you know giving you know providing more interest in football or a continued interest in football.
2: We are chatting with Jim Rooney. The book is A Different Way to Win. Dan Rooney's story from the Super Bowl to the Rooney Rule. Michael's going to get to the Rooney Rule in a second. But you just mentioned sort of a win-win scenario your father searched for. it. What did your dad pay for the team?
3: Well, my grandfather put $2,500 in 1932. For See, I would have done Frank's that. Statement. I, I, I Terrible investment. I would have been there with the $2,500 in 1932. We, we could have <laughs> pulled that off. Bro. Yeah, I definitely would have been there.
2: Is there a difference, however, in finding those solutions in terms of you're my partner, not just my competition? If you have no debt and you paid sort of in the family, like I have no mortgage on my house, versus the new guy, no matter his net worth, but he's paid – 2.3, looking ahead, $3, $4, 5000000000 billion for the entity. Is it harder to convince that guy to be like
3: Wellington Mara, who said, hey guys, we need to share? So, I look, I think that's a great point. And I think, you know, on, on, on a simple level, absolutely, it is harder to convince that those folks. But, you know, and again, I, I you know, I want to sound like a jerk here. I don't want to just be patting ourselves on the back. But I think the return on our investment continues to grow. You know, we're in the twenty sixth largest market, yet we're, um, you know, we're in the top five every year in terms of, of merchandising, top five in television ratings. Um, and why, you know, why is that? I one when I was young, listen, I was not a Steelers fan, right? But I had a Steelers jersey because
2: I love the black and gold. It was just a good look. That's it. I mean, that matters.
1: <laughs> oh, you look good in anything.
2: Yeah. <laughs> fine, fine. I have. A, if I go looking around the the old something in the basement. I will find a terrible towel. (laughs) I'm not kidding.
3: Well, I look, part of it is luck. We, we we and we worked hard. We did some good things to get these great players in the 1970s, but we had a lot of great players right when football exploded, sort of the golden age. The Steelers versus the Cowboys, the Steelers versus the Raiders. I think those are in a lot of ways some of the most romantic games in NFL history and people really remember that. So so there's a, there's an element of luck in there, but I hope that it's it also is that that we tried to do things a certain way that that you know gave us this footprint that is that is larger than our market size. So back to your original question. I, I- you know, I just think if you play the long game in in sports, you're going to get a better return. It it might be challenging with the debts that, that you're talking about, but I still think you're not going to sort of increase your debt, and eventually you 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 can build a brand that that uh, really has a footprint way beyond its market size.
1: You know, you talk about the romantic plays. Yes, I'll, I have watched the Immaculate Reception as it unfolded, <laughs> and and I'm looking at it, and I, you see something back then that you don't see today you see fans running out on the field right after that uh you see it in college nowadays obviously. everybody would have a bet on their mobile phone <laughs> yeah. <if> you <laughs> just smash screens is what you'd be seeing nowadays but one thing that the Steelers changed is the Rooney rule uh, and changed the National Football League uh and when people are coming up uh to be interviewed that rule changed a
3: lot can you expand more on that Sure. So, you know, again, I feel like I'm being a little bit annoying here. I know I wrote the book about my dad, so I guess that's what I'm talking (laughs) about. I'm patting myself on – patting him on the back, which he wouldn't like. But um, so in in 1968, we brought one of the first African-American scouts to the Steelers, Bill Nunn. And from 69 to 76, we drafted more players from HBCUs than any other team and those guys went on to perform in a way that that you know empirically we can show not just in wins and championships but in you know games played sacks uh, receptions touchdowns that those players contributed in a way that was substantially higher or greater than the non HBCU um, counterparts. So my father had this experience there that showed that if you expand the pool of talent, you not only are sort of doing the right thing, but but you have a competitive advantage. Um, he did some other things that, that I talk about in the book, particularly in Ireland, where he can you know, contributed to those similar types of attitudes. So then in in 2003, when Tony Dungy gets fired by Tampa Bay, Commissioner Tagliabue, you know, picked my father to run the, the NFL diversity committee. And I talk about how he built the compromise to get the rule. I talk about the years he spent with the gentleman named John Wooten, who was another one of the early African American scouts to really be the champion of the rule for, um, you know, the first 15 years you have from you know, if you look at the NFL, you know, this is hundredth anniversary. From nineteen twenty to two thousand three, you had you had basically seven minority hires. If you count general managers now, since the Rune Rule, you have thirty. You have a forty percent increase in um, minority coaches in the assistant coach level. So you have this this overall growth that that my father was proud to contribute to but he also would be the first guy to say hey we need to do a better job he was always about being rigorous about improving the process if there were more if there were new best practices out there if something had changed he'd be the first guy to say look we got to do a better job at these types of things
0: we had Ahmad Nasser. The he runs the NFLPA's marketing and licensing on, right on recently, and we talked a bit about kind of this push right now for NFL players to you know be a little more business savvy to take kind of control of their own marketing, et cetera. Uh, I'm curious how different you think do you see differences in players nowadays versus you know back in the seven the Terry Bradshaw era, just in terms of not on the field necessarily, but how they approach their own business and their own brand off the field.
3: So. Uh, my grandfather started the team in 1932 and i remember when i was like 18 19 years old i made this comment to him about these players today they get so much more money they don't pay attention blah blah, blah. my grandfather <laughs> said wait and he was a he was a boxer and it was a was an athlete he said wait a minute jim the players are the same today as they've always been and he he, he had an 80 10 10 rule he said 80% of the guys are like everyone else in the world and they, they do you know certain things. 10% are these marvelous people that you likely would never meet anywhere else and 10% of these guys you know might be more challenging. I think that that is true now 30 years after he made that statement. I do think that the mechanisms, you know, we're doing a podcast now and and people have there's tools now that allow you to do things that that have obviously changed the world in so many ways but i don't know that the that the people themselves have changed and I, and i hope that 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 continues to provide opportunities for people to hear these amazing stories that these guys so many of these guys have just overcome so much their commitment you know you guys are in the business world the discipline these guys have is all is never really brought out i mean the ability to work that hard to out out compete you know, basically everyone in the world to get to the top level that you can is, is an amazing story. So I think there's some great stories out there that that these new forms will allow them to tell, the, tell them.
2: But David Tepper just sold his stake in the team, which he had to do, had to divest
3: because of his obviously
2: majority control of Carolina. Who yep. bought who bought his shares?
3: So the team bought his shares. So it sort of got split amongst all of the owners.
2: Okay. Wait, any outsiders? Did new outsiders come in? I think in we brought
3: in two new outsiders. I don't have their names here. I oh. apologize.
2: OK. Let's get you in trouble on the way out, though. Who's your favorite <laughs> stealer of all time? Joe Green. Me, is, was he mean or was he not mean? Joe Green is tough. <laughs> I heard but tough is not mean. Barr is tough. I mean, Bar is mean, but he's not man, tough. Man, <laughs> he throws
1: the towel. He gets
3: the Coke. Man, that was good. He'd be, a, he'd
2: be a star. Yeah, I mean, from the commercial, people know him from that.
3: He'd, he'd be a star these days. <laughs> Joe, is, Joe is a special guy. There's, Joe, I, I hate to say this, but Joe's leadership on the field is like Tom Brady's. Joe made every single one of those guys, and we had some good guys, but he made everyone on the field better.
1: Just like Barr. Oh,
3: man. <laughs> but before I
1: give you a name, I, I got to tell the quick Joe Green story. Very oh, quick. You, have, you have a Joe Green story. I have story. a Joe oh, Green story. I read <laughs> this. I read this somewhere. Dick Buckus. And you know Dick Buckus is another one of those tough characters. <laughs> he'd be a John Tumble, Madden knock the snot out, out of him, man. Yeah. So, and Buckus didn't take any you-know-what off of anybody out there at all because he's Dick Buckus. Well, apparently, as the game is ending, Mean Joe Green is there. And they're all mad and this and that, whatever. And mean Joe Green apparently spit in his face. And you're expecting a big fight and nothing. You'd be expectorating <laughs> a big fight. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank <laughs> nothing you. Nothing happened. It was just, that was it, man. It was like, that's all You mean me Buck Joe gets Green. us one look and said, I want no part of this. Yeah, believe <laughs> it. it or not, man. Right. So now Dick Butkus is going to beat me up. Uh, <laughs> Jim Rooney behind a different way to win. Dan Rooney's story from the Super Bowl to the Rooney Rule. Thank you so much for joining us. It was fun talking with you, sir. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate the time. Man, that interview uh, brought me back. Mean Joe Green. I want a Coke, and a, you can have a smile. And, and I want the towel. Mm-hmm. And you know, Chuck Knoll, baby, Chuck Knoll. You know, that's the amazing. What is it? Only three head coaches for the Steelers. Yeah, Chuck Knoll, uh, and, uh, and 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 we well, you know the Bill Cower and Bill Cowher, and then of course uh, Mike Tomlin. Yeah. So that's amazing to me. Uh, this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. I'm Michael Barr along with Scott Soschnick and Evan Novy-Williams. We are here every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday exploring the world of money and sports.
0: Join us again at the end of the week. We'll keep talking with the biggest and brightest in the sports business world.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world and online where you get your podcast.